Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, where each time around for my spare room in North Wales, I strive to bring you those tales of true crime that more often than not may be unfamiliar to you, sometimes unbelievable, often nightmarish, from the shores of the UK and Ireland. The I is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. I am accompanied as always by my cow-coloured companion, Peeksy, the true crime enthusiast cat. And we are completed as ever by yourselves, the wonderful and cherished enthusiasts that have brought the show now almost into its sixth year. It is as always fabulous having you joining me in the Peaks today, which we thank you kindly for doing so. And I hope as ever that you've joined us, then the episode finds you and yours all good, all safe and all well. Big thanks as always go out to both the returning and new Patreon supporters of The Enthusiast, with shoutouts here to new friends King VB, Debbie Brogan, Sandy Scott, Stephanie Fortune and Keely Brown, plus Bob Thompson, who's edited his pledge, Sharon Barnett and Sarah Thomas, who have opted to annually support the show. Apologies if I've mispronounced anybody's name there. Now thank you so much all, you each rule and your support, it does mean the world, I can't stress that enough. The posties have been on strike here, so there may be some delays, but stuff has gone out to some of you, and you all have access to, and are hopefully working your way through, the plethora of bonus tales that being a supporter brings to you. Now I'm talking there are all sorts to be found there for some extra listening, from the tale of the Bravo 2 heroes, to the horrors of the cannibal and the cowboy, or Wicked Beyond Belief, to name just a few. So should you fancy a bit of extra enthusiasm for yourself, it's very cheap to support, and you can do it quick as anything, you just head over to the Patreon site and seek the show out on there. It's got the same show logo, so you can't really go far wrong. Just always remember that podcast suffix, folks. Or, you can just use the link that's always in the episode show notes, in amongst the contact details at the bottom, and it will take you right to it. So, last time around on The Enthusiast then, I began this series story arc with the first part of an overall tale I've entitled The Lost Boys, and in which we heard the tragic story of 14-year-old runaway Jason Swift, whose abused and violated body had been discovered in a copse in Essex in November 1985 almost five months after he'd last been seen by his family. We heard about the teenager's troubled life, and how he would regularly take himself off from a home that he struggled to be happy in, with evidence arising that he'd become involved in sex work as a source of ready cash for him. One Saturday afternoon in July 1985, Jason had packed his meagre belongings into plastic carrier bags, and had left the home of his sister Haley who he was staying with on a flat on the Kingsmead estate in Hackney. His family were never to see him again, and although there were one or two sightings of him, his movements largely remained a mystery, until his body was discovered in Essex almost five months later on that November morning. Now, as I explained in the previous episode, and if you haven't yet listened to part one, The Boy Who Loved Coins, then I advise you to stop here and listen to Jason's tale first, because it will contextualise this part that much more. 
If you have already heard it, then you will recall that I brought the episode to a close by saying that by May of 1986, Jason's murder had been connected to another killing, for another body had been found five days after his, and just nine miles from where he was found. A body of another boy, but this time, a much younger one. A boy who was just six years old. And it's now time for his story. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events involving injury detail, involving offences of a sexual nature, and dealing with sexual offences against children that some listeners may find extremely disturbing and or distressing. So please use discretion whilst listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for the second part of The Lost Boys for an episode I've entitled Barry's Story. It's now five days after the discovery in Shonks Mill Spinney near Stapleford Tawney in Essex of the naked body of 14-year-old Jason Swift and just nine miles away from it as the crow flies to an area of farmland just off the B194, a twisting road aptly known as the Crooked Mile, which runs north from the town of Waltham Abbey towards southwest Essex and southeast Hertfordshire, and which bisects the fishing territory of the adjacent River Lee to its left, and the deer and pheasant shooting to its right up in Galley Hill Wood. The land was, indeed is, crisscrossed with footpaths and old coach roads, and one of these, which runs off a road named Munkums, is Clapgate Lane, now a rutted and grassy track that meanders towards the hamlet of Ames Green. On that wet December morning, the 5th of December 1985, farmer Alex Gray and his son Andrew were inspecting the progress of crops that they'd sown months before on the aptly named 40-acre field, a plot overlooking the Lee Valley just outside the town of Waltham Abbey. The field, part of Munkham's Park Farm, which they'd leased from the Greater London Council, had originally been part of a larger private estate in days gone by, but by now the estate's manor house had been sold off and divided up into apartments, and the large expanse of arable land belonging to it, surrounded by woodland and footpaths, sectioned off and leased to farmers. Forty Acre Field, alongside Galley Hill Woods, and bordered by Clapgate Lane running parallel to it, was one such one now being used by Alex and Andrew Gray to grow crops, and one which had done them well that year, as it had yielded them a full summer crop of oilseed rape. The rain was teeming down that morning, when at about 10am, Alex and Andrew began their inspection, and only about 150 yards from the Manor House Drive, near to a tree line of thick oak trees, Alex had noticed a depression in the soil. Andrew, seeing his father's obvious interest in the disturbed earth, told his father that he'd first noticed it three weeks previously, when the ground had been hard and frozen, but since then, it had rained and the ground had softened, and foxes, it seemed, had taken an interest in the depression also. As the farmers inspected the first shoots of their new crop, Alex Gray prodded the soil with his boot, exploring this depression further, 
and then, sticking above the surface, he noticed a decomposed limb sticking out of the soil where foxes had worried the soil away, which at first he thought was the leg of a fawn. However, as he scraped away more soil, his blood chilled and his curiosity turned to horror when he revealed a second limb and he saw that it wasn't a deer at all. It was the decomposing remains of a child. Alex was uncovering the remains of a small boy. Alex and his son Andrew stood looking at each other for a moment, then the adrenaline kicked in and both were then off to raise the alarm. Alex recalled later, I had seen similar scenes during the war, but I was shocked to see two protruding human legs from the ground. From the marks in the soil, it appeared that foxes may have excavated some of the grave. Minutes later, police attending the scene turned off the road onto the farm track by Eagle Lodge, the building which acts as its unofficial marker, as it's one of the famously entirely round thatched houses that dot the area. Local history reportedly has it that the houses had been built that way in the 18th century so there would be no corners for the devil to hide in. And as a bit of a point to note, a village very near to where I live has similar customs and features. Many of the houses found there have either crosses or eyes cut into the buildings themselves to ward off evil spirits. Look it up, it's the village called Marford. So local passed down superstition has it anyway. So the lane itself was easily recognisable because of the then named Eagle Lodge, which at the time had been painted pink. The then occupant, Anne James, soon answered a knock at the door from an officer from the Metropolitan Police, Inspector Philip Williams, who'd come there requesting to use the telephone due to atmospherics in the rural area preventing the police officers who'd attended the scene, following the grey shocked phone call, from communicating with headquarters. Noticing the blue and white police tape already present in the field, and overhearing the horrifying news that the inspector had requested a police surgeon to attend, Anne shuddered. Over the next 30 minutes, she watched as a procession of vehicles pulled in off the Crooked Mile and made their way up towards Clapgate Lane. Then detectives, senior crime officers and a photographer made their way across to the taped-off grave. By this time, the downpour was torrential and although it was still morning, senior crime work was abandoned for the day, a white forensic tent being erected over the gravesite and the body covered over with a plastic sheet, a police officer placed on guard. Just before midnight, Anne looked out once again at the scene, and saw the tent silhouetted against the light from an arc lamp. A lone uniformed officer stood guard against it. She subconsciously closed the window and shut the curtains, needing to feel safe once again in her round home, built so, as I said, that the devil couldn't lurk in the corners. For it seemed indeed to Anne that the devil had been at work in Munkham's Park. Metropolitan Police Detective Sergeant Dave Sanderson, a laboratory liaison officer and senior crime manager, was at the scene early the following morning 
accompanied by Detective Superintendent Bill Peters, the officer leading the inquiry, and Dr. Peter Venesis, the examining pathologist. And while some 30 officers were carrying out a fingertip search of the site, and a police helicopter was taking aerial photographs of the gravesite, he began the unappealing, heartbreaking task of exhuming the body as intact as possible and ensuring that every scrap of evidence was collected and precisely labelled and preserved. With the weather that day dry, so enabling the top of the tent to be removed, providing a safer and more breathable atmosphere to work in with a decomposing corpse, Sergeant Sanderson got to work. The grave that he excavated eventually measured 32 inches in length, 16 inches in width, and was just 15 inches deep, and contained the naked remains of a male child curled up in the fetal position. Carefully excavating the area around the skull, he was eventually able to see hair, and was able to pluck out and preserve a few strands of tightly knitted curls. By this time already suspecting sadly that he knew the identity of the figure that lay below him. When the body was finally removed, and was on its way to the Princess Alexandra Hospital for post-mortem examination, Sergeant Sanderson, as a mark of respect and for a last semblance of dignity, draped a clean white sheet over the boy. Speaking to the press following discovery of the body, Detective Superintendent Peters played his cards close to his chest and officially avoided any kind of speculation about the victim, saying, We're obviously looking for someone who is disturbed in some way, a very callous individual. The body was in a certain amount of decomposition, although was quite well preserved when we uncovered it. I do not know the sex of the child. The body, having been in a shallow grave, is covered with mud. I would estimate from its size that it could be aged between 8 and 12 years old, but I could be wrong. It is impossible to say how long the body had been there, but I am treating it as a murder inquiry. When you find a child in a shallow grave, I cannot think of any other reason other than someone put it there. Obviously, parents are going to be worried. I would appeal to parents if they have had anyone approach their child recently or they know of attempts that have been made to abduct them, please to contact police. By this time, the officer leading the hunt for the killer, or killers, of Jason Swift, Detective Chief Inspector Derek Cass, had been informed that another body had been discovered in such a relatively close geographical location, and he immediately made his way first to the Munkums Park field, and then onto the Princess Alexandra mortuary. After DCI Cass and Detective Superintendent Peters had conferred and noted the obvious similarities between their respective cases, two male, naked children lying in the fetal position in rural locations, just nine miles apart, they agreed to liaise closely going forward on suspects of common interest. As had Sergeant Sanderson, Detective Superintendent Peters also had an immediate suspicion as to who the as-then unidentified boy was, one so strongly that he immediately got onto a colleague of his, Detective Superintendent William Hatful, down at Carter Street Police Station 
in Walworth in South London and told him, I think the boy we've just found could be the one you're looking for. For the previous three months, Detective Superintendent Hatful had been in charge of the massive hunt for six-year-old Barry Lewis, who had disappeared on his way home from a friend's house in Walworth on the warm Sunday afternoon of the 15th of September. A huge police search and operation had up to that time been undertaken to find the boy, but to no avail, and by then, three months later, missing had sadly given way to being suspected murdered. Discovery of a child's body not a million miles away then soon had Detective Superintendent Hatful on his way to the mortuary to await the post-mortem results. The post-mortem findings were that the body was that of a young boy aged it was estimated to be between 6 and 8 years of age and who had been dead for between 1 and 6 months. A piece of intact flesh, for the body was badly decomposed, was taken from behind a knee and which showed the pigmentation of the skin to be dark in colour, suggesting a child that was of mixed race origin. As we said before, the boy had tight, curly-knitted hair, but there was also found clearly discernible fingertip bruising to the rear of the scalp, which suggested that an adult's hand, and the finger marks were of that size and spacing, had at some point pressed down very hard on the back of the head, with another hand held over the mouth at the same time. This, Dr. Venesis decreed, was most likely the cause of death, asphyxia, although the extent of decomposition rendered it impossible to give an exact cause. This level also rendered it impossible to determine whether there had been any signs of sexual activity to the boy. An examination of the boy's teeth showed they'd been well looked after during life and had required no dental treatment, and the examining odontologist, Dr. Bernard Sims, decreed from his examination that they were those of a child six years and three months of age. It transpired he was merely eight weeks off the mark. Whilst the four-hour post-mortem was underway, the precise description of Barry that had been put together three months before was now delivered to the hospital, although some details of it, such as a crescent-shaped birthmark to the right side of his abdomen and a burn scar that he had on his chest, the results of an earlier accident, were no longer relevant. Such was the state of decomposition. Nor was any clothing found with the body or in a search of the immediate area, so that couldn't help with identification either. Samples of Barry's parents' blood group were tested against samples taken from the body, which showed it was 150 times more likely to be connected to them in a familial way than somebody else's. And when this was put with the curly hair samples, and the note that the distinctive shape of the boy's little fingers was unique, they curved inwards. Detective Superintendent Hatful was convinced that sadly, Barry had been found. Now, back in 1985, this was a lengthy process, and undertaking even this took days. But to clarify this further, 
for such factors would not be sufficient identification in any subsequent resulting murder trial. The photographs of Barry that police had in their possession were taken and negatives were now made of them, as well as of the skull of the body from similar angles and distance. When Barry's face was superimposed onto that of the skull, the match was haunting. It must always be a chilling, heartbreaking image to see something like that must. But Detective Superintendent Hatful looked long and hard at it, and it was this that finally satisfied him enough. That's it. It's Barry, was all he could say. Barry's mother, Vanetta Lewis, had already been pre-warned that the body was almost certainly Barry's long before this identification had been confirmed. But Detective Superintendent Hatful now bore the grim task of confirming it to her and her family 13 days after the body had been found. In the month where people should be looking forward to festivities, and traditionally one for most people that is a time of joy and happiness, Vanetta had to now hear that her firstborn child was dead. The news she'd hoped against hope that she would never hear. She told reporters on her doorstep, who, like absolute vultures, called only soon after the tragic news was announced. Whoever did this to my son is wicked, brutal. When he's caught, he should be hanged. Barry was just a little boy. How could somebody do that to him? I've never given up hope all this time, but I knew I had to look at both sides of it. My daughter Nina doesn't know yet. I don't know how I'm going to break it to her. She knows Barry's missing and she always asks when he's coming back. She still asks me every night, when is Barry coming home? She's all I've got left now. Vanetta then shut the door in tears. They're just no words, are they? No words. Unimaginable horror. If you head over to the show's Instagram page, have a look at the picture of Barry that is displayed there. It's the picture that had been used on his missing person posters, and also the picture that police had used for their superimposition onto the skull negative. He looks overall in it a picture of innocence and a happy child, perhaps one a bit mischievous, or the tearaway that his mother described him as being, but certainly one with plenty of character. You see that picture? And then I ask you, who can suffocate and then leave such a mite buried in a shallow grave miles from home? Monsters walk among us is all I can say there. Barry George Lewis, a captivating boy with a winning smile, was born in Lewisham Hospital on 12th of April 1979, the first-born child of then 16-year-old Vanetta Lewis who was seemingly destined to be a single mother, for Barry's father, an unnamed West Indian man, showed little to no interest in his son or to continuing on with their relationship. And so, Vanetta had returned with her newborn to live with her parents, Vernon and Rosemary Lewis, in New Cross in South East London. Here, they lived until 1981, when Barry was just over 18 months old before mother and son moved to a council flat about 15 minutes walk away from Vanetta's parents. The following year, Vanetta fell pregnant with Barry's sister, Nina, 
but this was another relationship that wasn't to last, ending unhappily, and so once again Vanetta moved back to her parents. However, with now two preschool children in tow, plus Vanetta's brothers still living there, a lack of space in the family home led Vanetta and her children to move once again six months later, this time into a hostel for the homeless in Sydenham. However, whilst they were living here, Barry still managed to spend a lot of time with his grandparents and uncles, who all doted on the boy, and who bought him his cherished first bike, a BMX. However, it's consensual through researching that Barry was happiest, wherever it was, with his mother, cuddling up to her on the sofa in front of the television, watching cartoons or the afternoon or evening soap operas. A real homebody. This nomadic and unsettled lifestyle, however, meant that Barry's school attendance did suffer somewhat, but this was where Vanetta's friend, Denise Layton, stepped in to help. Although she had children of her own, the then seven-year-old Jackie, two-year-old Tanya and eight-month-old Nicola, she was overall concerned for her friend's child that he was missing out on his education, and so, in June 1985, had suggested to Vanetta that Barry move in with her and her children so he could go to school with her eldest daughter Jackie, with whom he was good friends. Vanetta agreed to this, and so paid Denise £8 per week towards Barry's food and his upkeep, but agreeing that he would return to her at weekends. She would also call over to Denise's in the week to see her son, and this was an arrangement that everyone was happy with. We go back now to mid-September 1985, point of note just two weeks after the wreck of the Titanic was finally located by a joint American-French expedition. That weekend, the 14th and 15th of September, Barry had stayed over at Denise's instead of going to his mother's, however, because Vanetta had finally found them a permanent home and was that weekend in the process of furnishing and decorating it. She had seen him the previous Tuesday when she'd called over to Denise's, and had had cause to scold Barry while she was here, smacking him when she found out that he and Jackie had mischievously stolen some sweets from a shop. However, after some tears, and seeing how sorry Barry and Jackie were, mother and son had quickly made up. He'd been somewhat disappointed that he'd not seen his mother that weekend, but took comfort in the fact that he would soon be living back with her, new sofa, watching his beloved cartoons, and he was soon back in high spirits. Now, a generally good-natured yet mischievous child, a tear-away was how his mother Vanetta had described him. Barry and Jackie had been in trouble again that Sunday morning, after Denise had caught them striking matches in her back garden, but things had soon been made up, and the children settled down for a Sunday lunch of chicken, rice and potatoes, followed by an apple each. When they'd finished, the children settled down to watch the EastEnders omnibus that afternoon, God help them, before deciding shortly before 3pm to go out and call for their friend Michelle Ford, who lived in Trafalgar House part of a high-rise block of flats in Bronte Close, only some 500 yards away from Denise's flat in Dawes Street. 
Though Denise expressed curiosity as to why Barry was even bothering going out, as said, he was a homebody who would much rather be at home, perhaps relishing that relatively settled life that he had at Denise's, and would inevitably within minutes of being out decide that he'd rather be in, meaning someone would have to fetch him home. Nevertheless, off out he went that afternoon with Jackie. I know it seems unimaginable today to even think of two children of such an age off playing away from home in a busy city, but it seemed a different time back then. The dangers have always been there, of course, you just didn't seem aware of them. I was only a tad older than Barry back in 1985, and I remember being off playing all over. I'd be out for hours, and my mum wouldn't have a clue where I was, but I didn't for a second think of any danger. It was, sadly, cases such as this that brought that conscious home to people and made them, children too, that more aware. That Sunday afternoon then, the two children headed out of Door Street and onto East Street, the site of a busy and still held Sunday market, and reportedly the birthplace of Charlie Chaplin, also where Barry and Jackie had a race down to Bronte Close, dodging through the rubbish that had been left behind after that morning's market. Only moments later, they'd arrived at Bronte Close, a cul-de-sac just parallel to East Street. Once here, Michelle's mother had periodically kept an eye on the three children, and shortly after 3pm, had seen the three of them playing with a ball on the pavement outside Trafalgar House. However, not long after this, leaving Jackie playing with the ball downstairs, Barry and Michelle had headed back up to the third floor balcony, where Michelle's mother looked out of the window to see Barry climbing up on the balcony parapet. She'd immediately knocked on the window and scolded him for his own safety to get down from there, and so he had, and had headed back downstairs and rejoined the game. Although he had by this time, at an hour, lasted longer than usual being out playing, what was felt characteristically for him, or perhaps out of his sensitivity and discomfort because he'd just been told off by an adult in the way that some kids can be, he decided he wasn't going to stay in the game anymore and decided to head for home, telling Jackie, I'm going for a walk, don't fancy playing, see you at home. So, by that time, just before 4pm, Jackie, Barry's best friend, grabbed his hand and escorted him to the end of Bronte Close, before turning back to continue in the game. A streetwise child, Barry had a mere 500 yards to go by himself. It was a warm September afternoon, and at that time, following the busy Sunday market, the streets were quiet. He should have been back within minutes. But three hours later, seven-year-old Jackie came home alone. When her mother asked her immediately where Barry was, Jackie replied in all honesty that she didn't know, because he'd left for home almost three hours before and should have been back home from leaving her and Michelle within minutes. With that kind of instantaneous panic that always must come whenever you think something may have happened to a child, Denise was beside herself instantaneously. Barry was a homebody and he would never stay out on his own. Plus, because he was living with Denise and her children at the time, 
he had no close friends of his own living in the area that he could be out with. Denise shot around to Bronte Close to search for him herself, but there was no sign of Barry there or on the way, and so, flagging down a passing police patrol car, she reported him as missing. With the patrol car's officers now aware, and after taking details of the boy, as they set off to search the area for him, they advised Denise to attend Carter Street Police Station just a few minutes walk away and officially report him as missing. By that time, it was 7.30pm on Sunday, September the 15th, and when Denise Layton did just this, as directed, she instigated one of the biggest hunts ever for a missing child in UK history. By five hours after Barry had set off playing, an organised police search for him had begun, one entrenched in deep-rooted concern because of the suddenness of his disappearance within such a short distance. Spanning outwards from the Bronte Close and East Street areas, a large-scale search involving some 120 officers and even police cadets from Hendon was made of all sheds, garages and outhouses in case Barry was hiding or lying hurt in any of these. Whilst another squad undertook a methodical search of both Michelle Ford's and Denise Layton's flats. Officers were also deployed to both Vanetta's flat and her parents' home to search there, having all bases covered. Now, predictably, the early police inquiry centred around Barry's immediate family and his close friends, and Vanetta's lifestyle came under close scrutiny here, not just from a police point of view. It led to her father Vernon storming around to remonstrate with her for being an unfit mother, though this fury had quickly given way to worry and support for his daughter. The hunt continued throughout the night, and by the morning, Detective Superintendent William Hatful had taken charge of what was now a major incident, being run from Carter Street Station. The obvious possible reasons for Barry's disappearance were looked at, He'd gotten lost, he'd had an accident and was lying hurt somewhere, or had been taken in by a well-meaning person, but these were overshadowed by the more sinister theories, that he'd been abducted, or that he'd been murdered. Local searches continued throughout derelict houses and buildings, plus all open expanses and waterways in the area, but nothing was found. Stall holders at the market that's held every Sunday and which had been held the previous day were traced and spoken to, as well as were the drivers of all public transports passing through the area. In fact, so much information was coming forth from the public. That sense of outrage and urgency whenever a missing child is concerned prevalent that a temporary police station was even set up in East Street to deal with it. Jackie, meanwhile, spent the Monday at Carter Street Police Station, the deeply upset child gently being coaxed by officers to recall every single detail of the day before. Barry's classmates at Surrey Square Primary School were also that Monday morning spoken to, as well as his teachers and his head teacher, Hazel Colwell, and who all painted a picture of a quiet, somewhat shy boy with all of them unanimous in their conviction that he would never have gone off by himself of his own accord. 
Detective Superintendent Hapful, a veteran of dozens of serious inquiries in his 20 years as a Met police officer, was convinced of this too, and it was his experience that taught him to plan for the worst from the off. He went to Denise's flat and discovered from her what Barry's last meal had been, and explained to her that he needed to know, right down to socks and undergarments, what Barry had been wearing, plus the sizes of the clothing, and any branding that they had. Now, Denise's first description of these did prove to be totally wrong, for when detectives gathered together every piece of children's clothing from the flat, they found the jumper and jeans that Denise had originally described Barry as wearing to police, and by process of elimination, had worked out a much more accurate description of what the boy had actually been wearing. Jeans, a dark brown crew neck jumper with yellow hoops, possibly worn tied around his waist, puma training shoes, and white socks with BMX on them. The incorrect description of what he'd been wearing had been a genuine error by a distraught Denise, and one that she was mortified by, but one that illustrated the difficulties that witnesses can have in recalling such details, even such a relatively short time later. Aside from fingerprinting Barry's chair in his classroom and the desk that he sat at, detectives took Barry's school anorak, his toys and his school books to obtain samples of his hair and his fingerprints and compiled a precise description of the boy and of his distinguishing features, such as the dark burn scar on his chest as the result of an accident some years before, as well as a crescent-shaped birthmark on the right side of his stomach. The little fingers on both of his hands were also bent slightly inward, and it was established that he'd never needed any dental work in his short life. Details that were necessary and would greatly assist detectives in the unappealing event that they discovered had to identify a body. Now, that week was a prominent one in the UK for missing children, for alongside Barry, there had been three other high-profile missing kids reported around the same time, and though each was swiftly found, each were to end tragically, which I won't go into any further here right now, because not only are they cases unconnected with the story arc, but each will feature at some point in the future on The Enthusiast. And so, because of these, Barry's case perhaps didn't get the newspaper column headlines it deserved. The investigating team did liaise with each of the investigating teams in these respective cases and the perpetrators in each were ultimately questioned at length by the Barry Lewis squad, only to be each ruled out of the investigation. Detectives continued to look closely at Barry's family. His father was questioned and quickly ruled out, he hadn't even seen his son in more than a year, and even Vanetta and her new boyfriend were taken in and questioned somewhat brutally, I must add, about her being an unfit mother. The team also drew up a family tree and set about the task of tracing even the most distant of the boy's relatives, closing off all possible lines of inquiry in case he was staying with someone's cousin's neighbour who'd looked after his bloody Nana's dog in the 1950s, that type of tenuous link, you know. And though these inquiries were to even stretch as far as the Caribbean, they were to prove fruitless. Now as days passed, there were a spate of reported, 
but on confirmed sightings of Barry, one friend of his even said that she'd seen him the day after he disappeared at a playground near to his school, in the company of a man. The playground was kept under surveillance each morning for two weeks after this report, but the boy, had he existed, was never again sighted. Another man who knew Barry well reported seeing him that Sunday evening in nearby Rotherhithe, a report which got police excited, although this was found to be incorrect. Now, some of these sightings were from well-meaning people genuinely trying to be helpful, but others were equally just the malicious, attention-seeking and time-wasting idiots that such an investigation always attracts. Many of these mistaken sightings, including the Rotherhithe one, turned out to be of a boy of a similar age to Barry named Trevor Denny, who indeed did resemble him so closely that after his parents agreed to it, Trevor even portrayed Barry in a televised reconstruction of Barry's last known movements. By seven days after Barry had gone missing, feelings about his well-being were somewhat mixed. Denise Layton, her eyes red and swollen from crying, told reporters, I took Barry in last June because his mum, Vanetta, was living in hostels and there's never been a dad around. I told her he can come and live with me and go to school with my Jackie. I love kids and he was such a lovely little boy. I just can't take all this in. I can't believe what's happening. You see, he's not the sort of kid that wanders off. He's always sitting here eating sweets and watching the television. Barry's mum didn't really have a house, just a room with three beds and a sink. In a way, this was his first bit of family life. Enjoyed living here, watching the telly with me in the evening. Barry went out with my daughter Jackie last Sunday afternoon. It was about 3pm. I wasn't worried because they were going to a school friend's house and I knew that the father would walk them both home. Come seven, Jackie's at the front door, alone, telling me she hasn't seen Barry. He left her at the top of our road. I knew immediately that something awful had happened. Barry doesn't have any friends round here, so if he goes out, he's always back ten minutes later. I threw on my coat and took Jackie with me round to the local police station. Last night, when Jackie was in bed, she says she saw him outside looking through the window. She's thinking about Barry all the time. However, Denise added, After what's happened to Leone and those other two kids, I know it's going to be bad. I can't kid myself. Maybe the only thing I can hope for is that it wasn't horrible for him, that he didn't suffer like Leone did. Now, that isn't meant to sound callous or unfeeling at all, because Denise really was broken by this. That is instead pure honesty from her, her facing reality and voicing at that time what many officers, and even several members of Barry's family, must themselves have been feeling, being honest, although fighting not to, I'm sure. One person who refused to think this, or to at least voice this, however, was Barry's mother, Vanetta, who said, I'm going crazy with worry. I tell myself every day, Barry, come back to me. I just have this feeling that he's still alive somewhere. I know you're alive. 
I have to tell myself this to keep going. I'll never give up hope. I don't want any mother to suffer like I have. It's the worst thing that can happen to any parent. It must be unimaginable, mustn't it? It being your worst nightmare, you must truly cling to any sliver of hope that it isn't true and really be unable to even entertain the possibility that your child may be dead. My heart never fails to go out to people in such a situation, and their words, and sometimes their pictures, as I find through researching, they stay with you. It never fails to in any of the sad cases of lost children that I've featured here on the show, be it Michelle's parents, or Jason's, Keeley's, Sophie's, the list goes on, and my heart breaks for them, it really does. All in all, the search for Barry involved hundreds of officers and was intense for well over a month, all of the southeast London area being sectored off and systematically combed by search teams, dogs and underwater units, but nothing was found. It was almost as if Barry had disappeared off the face of the earth. Some weeks into the inquiry, Detective Superintendent Hatful told the press, It's just unbelievable. I've been a policeman for 22 years and I've never known a more baffling case. I've asked myself a million times, how can a boy just disappear without trace, vanish into thin air? And as the days passed into weeks, with nothing turning up, no tangible sightings of Barry that couldn't be ruled out, and any clothing that was found as a result of searching being checked against the inventory that police had, Though each piece being discounted, reality had kicked in, and the thought that, however unwelcome, must unavoidably creep into the minds of any level-headed person, now did so into the minds of the officers hunting for him. With such a passage of time, with no trace of the boy, they were now convinced they were no longer looking for a missing child, but a murdered one. Thousands of posters were still displayed in shops, garages, supermarkets, pubs, all depicting Barry's smiling face from the photograph that's become synonymous with his case, which, as I said before, if you head over to the show's Instagram page, you can see for yourself. And throughout that autumn, and heading into that winter of 1985, Barry's smiling face seemed to unconsciously say to everyone who saw it, Where am I? That question was to be sadly answered just five days after a farmer, out hunting pheasant, had made a shocking and at the time unconnected discovery of his own, just nine miles away. Following Barry's discovery and his sad identification, his grandmother, Rosemary Lewis, said, Anybody who knows something shouldn't waste any time and should go straight to the police this killer must be caught. Yet, throughout the months since Barry had gone missing, till he was discovered in that field, one man had unwittingly held what may have been a vital clue to his whereabouts, and events that had seemed merely memorable at the time for their out-of-the-ordinariness now became very chillingly significant to him, upon him hearing that a child's remains had been discovered. He contacted police as soon as he heard this news and gave police their first break in the inquiry only days after Barry had been discovered. 
The man, a schools inspector for Haringey Council named Keith Wielden, came forward to police to describe how one afternoon the previous September he'd been driving home to Harlow and recalled giving a man and a young mixed-race boy a lift along the Crooked Mile. Especially remembering the incident, as when he'd picked them up, the man had a can of petrol under one arm and the boy under the other. It was a young boy and he fitted Barry's description exactly, but was limp like a rag doll. Mr. Wielden described, When they got into the car, I thought the boy looked drugged, and I asked the man if he was ill, offering to put him on the back seat. The man declined this and kept the boy in his arms in the front passenger seat, explaining when I asked him, He'll be alright here, he's poorly and he didn't sleep well last night. Keith had picked the man and the boy up, as they'd been standing at the Waltham Abbey end of the Crooked Mile, opposite the Lee Valley nurseries. The party then drove in the direction of Harlow, the man appearing edgy and reluctant to engage in conversation, until the man, who Keith could describe as being between 30 and 35 years of age, of average build and about 5 feet 9 inches tall, with a lined or weather-beaten face, Southern accented and casually dressed in jeans and a checked shirt, a social worker type Keith had described, asked him to stop at the entrance to Travers Piggery about two miles up the road from where he'd picked them up, and where a car, which Keith later described as a red Talbot Horizon hatchback, was parked up on a verge opposite the Riverlee Country Park of Hooks Marsh. The man and the boy then got out of the vehicle, and after placing the boy into the back of the car, Keith Wielden then watched as the man began filling the car up with fuel from the petrol can, acknowledging him with a wave as he then subsequently drove off. His good deed done. Keith recalled to police, I left them as the man was starting to pour the petrol into the tank. I can't recall the registration number, but I'm almost certain it was a red Talbot Horizon five-door hatchback. He could also recall vividly the car being parked up off the road on the verge, and the man stood upright, emptying the petrol can into the horizon's tank from waist height. He remembered details such as that the parcel shelf of the vehicle was some two inches below the top of the back seat, and that although the car was tatty, was the word he used to describe it, it was not battered. Keith also recalled that as he'd driven away, in his rearview mirror, he'd seen the boy clamber up to look out of the window of the vehicle. He was also certain, when shown photographs of Barry, that this had been the boy. But what he was never to know until it was too late, was that, heartbreakingly, the boy had perhaps then been tapping feebly on the car window, desperately watching his last hope drive away. No words, eh? No words. Can you imagine just how much something like that would torture you, knowing it? Keith is in no way to blame there whatsoever, of course not, but I know how I'd feel perhaps knowing it. I had to ponder over and rewrite that sentence a few times while I was writing this part, and it's added in not out of sensationalism or for dramatic effect, but one I do think is a very genuine possibility to have occurred, which I shall explain about at another point in the arc. Now, 
A check of Keith Wielden's work diary revealed that the earliest time that month he could have been on the Crooked Mile for said event would have been the 16th of September, the day after Barry had vanished. Subsequent inquiries at the nearest petrol station, the Abbey filling station on Sewardstone Road, by the roundabout at the foot of the Crooked Mile, determined that it was certainly to have been that day, for an attendant here, Wendy Hancock, when spoken to, remembered serving the man and the boy, remembering the white male and the mixed-race boy for their odd pairing, and for the way the boy had stood at the petrol pump as the man had filled the can. He was actually propped against it. She confirmed that when they came inside, the boy had seemed sleepy and quiet, and that the male, whose description matched that as given by Keith Wielden, had at least some local knowledge in her opinion, because he described running out of petrol up the crooked mile. After the man had purchased about £2 worth of fuel, Wendy had asked another customer using the pumps if he would give them a lift back up to their car. But this motorist declined to, saying he was heading in the opposite direction to them, towards Chingford. The man then scooped up the boy once again, and walked off back up towards the Crooked Mile. Now this was confirmed as being the 16th of September, because, through cross-checking and looking at hundreds of till receipts, plus the fact that Keith Wielden was only in the area infrequently, and during that period, Wendy had also worked a staggered pattern, it being the one day when both the witnesses could be placed there and when two pounds of petrol was dispensed, most likely into a can. The exact time? 5pm on Monday, September the 16th, 1985. Barry Lewis had disappeared just over 24 hours before, just 15 miles away. So, if this was Barry and his killer, then he was still alive 24 hours after his abduction, which means someone else must have seen them in that time. And due to the distance between the petrol station and where the red car was abandoned, someone must have seen them both at or near the scene, and most likely given them a lift to the petrol station also. Two miles is a long way to walk whilst carrying a child after all, isn't it? Crime Watch UK now offered their services to the investigation, and it was arranged that Trevor Denny, the boy who'd been mistaken for Barry in several sightings, would portray him in the reconstruction. Denise Layton and Jackie also took part in it and reenacted Barry's last known movements, that lunchtime with Denise at her flat, and then Barry and Jackie heading off down to Trafalgar House to call for and play with Michelle before him leaving to go home. In Waltham Abbey, an actor who fitted the description of the suspect Keith Wielden and the petrol station attendant had seen, carried Trevor in his arms along the Crooked Mile, recreating the events that I described before, and this helped to confirm a suspicion that police had. Such was the weight of the boy that almost certainly the killer could not have carried Barry the two miles to the petrol station. Someone must have stopped and given them a lift there. Keith Wielden had come into BBC Television Centre to help compose a Crime Watch video fit based on the description that he'd given to police, which after four months since the sighting was difficult to do, the added pressure being that if you got it wrong, it may discourage or confuse potential witnesses. 
and so vital evidence in the form of sightings may be lost or thought irrelevant. However, in more than a dozen statements that he'd made to police, and even under hypnosis, Keith had been unwavering in his descriptions of both the man and the vehicle, and the photo fit is not a million miles away from being spot on either. When the film aired on the January 1986 edition of Crime Watch on January the 30th, Detective Superintendent Hatful appeared live in the studio to broadcast the appeal, and the response received was one of the strongest that the programme had received since it had been on the air. Over 300 calls were received as a result of the reconstruction, with people calling in with information, possible vehicles for police to check out, as well as possible sightings of Barry and his killer, two in particular which captured police attention. At 7am on the Monday in question, only some 15 hours after Barry was last seen, a farmer had seen a man and a boy matching Barry and his killer's descriptions walking through Epping Forest. Whereas later that day, between 3 and 4pm that afternoon, a woman who was picking slows in a different part of the forest saw a boy who looked like Barry run past her, and who she stopped, for he was about to run out into the road, before a man then appeared and led the boy away by the hand. Now, the woman could confirm the date of this as being Monday, September the 16th, because she'd written the date on the labels of the bottles of wine that she'd subsequently made with the slows that she'd picked that day. Incidentally, there is no further information concerning these sightings than this, but if this was Barry and his killer, then where had he been kept overnight? Detective Superintendent Hatful was later quoted as saying, I'm convinced Barry was kept overnight in a car in the forest, and most probably killed the next day. Years later, information received would suggest that these sightings were inaccurate. But when the information from the rest of these calls was sifted through, and it left police no nearer to catching Barry's killer, they turned back to the strongest line of inquiry that they had, finding the car Keith Wielden had described. A massive operation was now set in place to find and eliminate every red Talbot horizon in the country, and to interview the owner, a backlog of some 9,000 cars. This then led to a massive trawl, where police discovered that although vehicles with the featured details Keith Wielden had described had not been produced for seven or eight years, a police national computer check showed that there were still almost 20,000 Talbot Horizons of the correct age still in circulation, and 45% of these, some 9,000, were red in colour. Detectives spent two months covering the areas of northeast London Southwest Essex and Southeast Hertfordshire, working through vehicles within this area, and when nothing was found, the net was widened to cover the whole of the UK. It was a logistical nightmare. In these areas alone that the Lewis Inquiry team were covering, several of these cars had been written off and scrapped after crashes, had been stolen or sold at auctions, or had even changed hands without the DVLA being informed sometimes having multiple owners. Nonetheless, the Lewis squad checked through some 4,500 of these on their own, 
whilst the remainder were checked by other forces. It was a line of inquiry that was to ultimately last several years, and one that was raised once again by the Crime Watch UK edition of February 1988, when the programme appealed that ten weeks before, an anonymous female caller had contacted police referenced the murder of Barry Lewis, and had directed them to check a garage in Richwood House on the Canterbury Estate in Brixton, which police had, and where they discovered an old red Talbot horizon. Though appeals were made for this woman to come forward, the response to this was poor, she never did come forward, and what was potentially a promising lead, ultimately turned out to be a dead end. Throughout the investigation, the team never seemed to be short of suspects to eliminate either, and armed with a detailed questionnaire, which contained maps of the area in which Barry's body was found, a detailed artist's impression of the man described by Keith Wielden, and a personal description form for use by the officers assigned to undertake the interview, if any potential suspect gave themselves a vague alibi, for example, I was at home watching TV that day, the officers were even armed with a full running order of the day's news events and programme schedules, complete with full plot details and characters from programmes, thus being able to ask the potential suspect to describe these to be able to ascertain such an alibi. Every incident room in London was also asked to notify Carter Street of all reports of attempted abductions or approaches to young boys, as well as suicides, and also suicide attempts. Now, a laboratory toxicology test performed on Barry's remains a post-mortem, meanwhile, had revealed something that was to be startlingly similar that May, when Jason Swift was re-examined, which I've not mentioned until now. Six-year-old Barry was found to have traces of enough drugs in his system to have rendered him into a ragdoll figure within minutes, having been given heavy doses of diazepam, tamazepam and desmethyldiazepam. They were not drugs commonly prescribed for a young child, and it had been ruled out that Barry was not on any kind of extreme medication such as this, and allowing for Barry's age and his size, the dosage forced upon him would have been extremely quick-acting, taking effect in not much more than 30 minutes, and which would have been effective for at least 6 to 8 hours. Dr Brian Connett, who had performed these tests, believed that a large dose of this had been given to Barry no more than 12 hours before he'd been murdered. Now, it was not lost on any of the investigating team, or the examining medical professionals, that the three drugs were commonly used by gay men due to their muscle relaxing qualities, particularly diazepam, which tests showed was the drug most predominant in quantity in the small six-year-old boy. Now, I'm sure I don't need to say out loud the horrific realisation that the investigating team and medical professionals had reached with these results, as for what other reason would a six-year-old boy be given such a dosage? Sickening, monstrous and wicked beyond belief, isn't it? Following similar tests being performed on Jason's body, 
with similar results and which were clarified further in another examination in May of that year by Professor Gresham, as I explained in the previous episode. On the 17th of January 1986, a meeting was held at Essex Police Headquarters in Chelmsford, where various senior officers from the Essex Force hierarchy sat opposite a Deputy Assistant Commissioner from the Met and Commander Philip Corbett, Scotland Yard's head of C-11, the Criminal Intelligence Unit, where they were briefed by the two senior officers leading the Jason Swift and Barry Lewis inquiries, who of course had been liaising since Barry's body had been discovered. It was decided even back then to tentatively link the inquiries, unable to ignore the similarities and short geographical distance, and to proceed under the operational name of Operation Stranger, though this was not made public for the time being. On 16th of April 1986, however, Detective Superintendent Hatful and Detective Superintendent James Keneally from Essex summoned reporters to a press conference that was held on the ground floor of New Scotland Yard, where for the first time officially, Operation Stranger was publicly revealed and the murders of Jason Swift and Barry Lewis were linked. Commander Corbett, also present, listed the nine points between the two murders that had led officers to do this, listing them as follows. Both were young boys. Both were found naked. Both were found in the fetal position. Both had been asphyxiated. The bodies were found less than 10 miles apart in rural locations. Both bodies were found within a week of each other. No clothing of the boys was found at either scene. A car must have been used in each case to dispose of bodies. The ninth link was to be the clincher for the press, however. There was clear evidence that both boys had been heavily drugged with the same tranquilizer. The Barry Lewis inquiry was now moved from Carter Street to an incident room set up at Walthamstow Police Station in East London to be as close as possible to the Essex team working from La Plata House at Brentwood Police Station running the Jason Swift investigation in order for information to be more easily and swiftly exchanged. Remember, we're talking here before the days of email, most likely even fax machines, so a lot of evidence and documentation had to be regular couriered between the two. The Lewis squad was also now able to utilise the Holmes computer. As I said previously, this is a tale of several firsts, and this earmarked Essex Constabulary's first use of Holmes. Because Home Office directives were that any major operation involving multi-forces had to be coordinated from within the ranks of the Association of Chief Police Officers, Commander Corbett was appointed co-coordinator of Operation Stranger, and as a new incident room was now set up, complete with homes terminals and 16 trained operatives to input data, work began of inputting the 45,000 plus documents that the Lewis Inquiry had amassed since September into the system. It was a massive job, and yet, whenever this seemed a daunting task to undertake, one look at the haunting pictures of the two children that gazed silently down from the walls of the room was enough to steal anyone's spirits and drive investigators forward to catch whoever was responsible, 
no one wanting a third photograph to be added to the wall. It was something they were dealing with, Commander Corbett had described to the Operation Stranger team when the two cases were first linked, something the likes of which they had never seen before, and an examination of unsolved murders and attacks on children was now undertaken, with a conference held five days later at Scotland Yard, a short list of some 18 cases to be discussed. Several of these names were, as have been mentioned, the three other children who'd gone missing and subsequently been found murdered around the same time as Barry had disappeared, but ultimately unconnected to Barry and Jason. Others were found to be victims of an as-then unidentified and unconnected serial child murderer, one monster who we shall undoubtedly meet at some point in the future on the show. And aside from several missing persons that couldn't be ruled out, the investigating team were left with three cases in particular that they were drawn to as being tentatively linked to Operation Stranger due to the victimology involved and the geography. Now, knowing that more than one person had to have been involved, at least in the disposal of Jason's body, then ergo is murder, the unappealing idea that was beginning to formulate here with the investigating team and which played on their minds as members of it attended Barry's funeral and his burial at Hithergreen Cemetery in Lewisham on the 30th of June, was. Was there a team of serial sex killers out there, targeting the most vulnerable of our society, our children? Well, the case was to blow open as a result stemming from an unconnected police inquiry, and it's one that I shall come on to explain about in the next part of The Lost Boys, for that is the perfectly logical place to leave the tale for the time being, and I forewarn you now. I know what's being discussed here is already horrendous, is truly awful beyond belief, but, and I'm sure you know this already if you're familiar with the case, but if it's one that's just developing and you're only hearing about it now, for the first time, then it does get darker, I warn you. Yet it's one I can't apologise for because we go all or nothing here on The Enthusiast and I always want the listener to experience the same horror and emotion that I have through researching. With that, it's on to the next part I go and I shall wrap up here right now then. I thank you as ever for joining me in the MOG for what I know must be a difficult listen. You should try researching and writing it. But overall, the golden thread that runs through all this is that I firmly believe it's an important tale to be told so that the lost boys involved seem somewhat less lost and more familiar to others and it's one I'm fully committed to doing the best I can with. All that remains for me to say then is that I've been, I still am and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you all good and safe times and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe, and keep your loved ones close, and goodbye for now.